why I was there, I could have never understood at the time. I wanted to climb, would have been my answer. The weekend warriors who frequented J-Tree would always be jealous of me when I told them how long I was staying for. That would immediately make them think of work on Monday, and they would think of me climbing on Monday. I would care that aura of living the dream in our conversation, but it was an illusion. There was just so much that was missing. If it really came down to it, I was as jealous of those people as they were of me. Jealous of their significant others, their stability, their jobs. Well, maybe not their jobs, but I was jealous that they had a life plan set into action. And therein lied my battle, my struggle. I was out in Joshua Tree because after 18 years of schooling, I still didn't know what I wanted to do for a career. I didn't want to fight, I didn't want to teach, I didn't want to research, and I didn't want to study in a classroom anymore. I felt like I was given a whole world of opportunity, and I still passed on every opportunity except that opportunity to climb rocks and live outside. Welcome to episode 11 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. If you've made it this far, you know what it is. We are into American Climber, and I'm growing up, but I'm growing up at a, a slower pace, I think, than some people have to live in the dirtbag life. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art. You can find those guys at stickerart.com. They are based here in Durango, Colorado, where we are, and every sticker tells a story. Check them out and use the coupon code DIRTBAG at checkout for 20% off. You can support this podcast by checking out the links in our show notes to uh, subscribe on Patreon for as little as a dollar per month, and uh, as I always say, the best way to support the climbing zine is to subscribe. And let's get into it for the climbers, for the dirtbags, and for the people who want to be dirtbag climbers. This is episode 11. I'd lined up my old college buddy Dave as my partner. Dave was the yin to my yang. He was calm and collected, and I was a bit hungry and charged. After two months of mostly predictable climbing, I knew the tall walls of Zion would provide adventure. Dave was a climbing guide and had the demeanor. In many ways, he was the only truly experienced climber in our duo. He could read the weather and the rock and knew when to push onward and when to back off. That was perfect because I was ready to just set sail in any type of weather. I just craved the adventure. And I was full of the hopeful, youthful enthusiasm that will usually get you into trouble. And when we were two pitches up the tombstone wall, a classic thousand-foot route of seams and cracks, a wicked storm started brewing above us. A towering wall of gray clouds hovered, but I still wanted to press on. Dave looked at me like I was a damn fool, which I was, and told me we needed to rappel down right now. And we did, and the rainstorm ensued, keeping the sandstone wet for days. So we rolled around in the area of my truck, just wasting time. The area surrounding Zion is a Mormon stronghold. What is particularly interesting is that there are still the fundamentalist Mormons who practice polygamy, a once common practice in their history. Now, being in Mormon country means you have to be very careful with weed and alcohol. Those bastards will spy on you with night goggles when you're in camp and deliver you a $1,000 fine plus probation simply for hitting the peace pipe. And you could say we often hit the peace pipe in those days while celebrating a climb over a campfire and rice and beans. 
On one rest day, a rainy day, we wandered over near Colorado City. I was reading John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven, which chronicles the sad, deep sins of the Mormons and their ties to polygamy and the abuse of young women. And I was disturbed, but curious. We drove through Colorado City, and it looked like it was a pool of incest, a haunting reminder of how the Mormon religion started. People looked inbred and sad. I couldn't bear to look them in their eyes, and we got out of there as quickly as possible. After several days of wandering the region and trying to stay out of trouble, the weather cleared, and we went back up on the touchstone. At this point, I was charged and ready to go and wanted nothing else in the world but to be up high in the vertical world. Tim rolled out at 2 in the morning and pulled into our campsite from Monticello, Utah, where he was living at the time. I demanded we get up as early as possible, and everyone obliged. I was surely impatient and too eager. Tim slept slumped over in his front seat of his truck and looked haggard in the morning. Dave and I had already packed everything up the night before. I was upset about how long it took in the morning, and I just wanted to charge the climb. We had to wait for the shuttle bus to get a ride in because Zion had closed the cars in the busy season. The tourists looked at us like we were out of our minds, draped in climbing gear. We tried to pay them no mind as we discussed our techniques. We were hoping to do the climb in one push, no bivouac, just up and down in the daylight. We'd be popping beers by nightfall, we hoped. My selective ADD mind recalls the fourth pitch, a perfect 5.11 splitter that I tried to free climb. At the time, it was at my limit, and with a few hundred feet of air below my shoes, the effort was thrilling and intoxicating, which is probably why I still remember it. Heart pounding, muscles shaking. I made delicate moves up the face and barely pulled it off without falling. I was proud of my efforts and I arrived at the belay awash in adrenaline and psych. A truly experienced climber will take stock of the situation and decide if there's enough time to complete the climb. I didn't do that. I was just in love and in a trance with the experience. I mean, I didn't analytically think about how we we're gonna get off this wall or if we even had enough time to complete the climb, I just thought, holy fuck, this is awesome. This is the life, pushing myself to the limit, ending up higher and higher on a huge sandstone wall, surrounded by bigger sandstone walls. I just want to do this forever and never grow old. I was not yet an experienced climber. I had enough experience on how to climb, but not how to climb with style. At this point, Tim's fatigue started showing itself. The guy had only slept a couple hours after driving all night. Dave was calm and collected like always and took the lead, pushing us higher and higher. But the sun was setting as I took the next lead and climbed into the darkness. We missed a key part of the beta on how to properly climb the touchstone wall. You're supposed to rappel down once the steep climbing is over. The route continues, but it wanders up several unimpressive slab pitches, leading to a point of no return. I climbed into the darkness, the night, and we looked at our topo, and we still had about five pitches to go until the summit. Once Tim and Dave came up, we realized that very unfortunately, Tim did not have a headlamp. He got mad at himself for the forgetfulness, but those are the breaks. Sleeplessness leads to forgetting things, and climbers are almost proud of our ability to improvise. Then I was getting mad. I started leading up the slab, thinking, we're close to having the day over, and then I couldn't complete a move. I climbed up and down and then started yelling, started screaming, like some ancient rage decided to leave my body that day. Dave and Tim sent up the protocol of encouragement, the things climbers always say, like, you got it, come on, man, you can do this. I was mad because hours earlier I'd been performing at a much higher level and much steeper and more difficult terrain, but the darkness and the fatigue were getting to me. 
And in fact, it had broken me down until I was a person screaming at a rock face, like yelling at the wind, desperation and frustration getting the best of me, far from the Zen focus I had just a few hours earlier. I expelled that energy out of me and got it back together. And hours later, we reached the top of the touchstone wall. It was one of the most pure moments of fear, bewilderment, and awareness that I've ever had. The moon shined brightly on the surrounding walls, and it was all out of this world, but it was within this world. The world was this wild, astounding, inspiring place. It really was. It was like being on another planet, or in the middle of this deep dream you wondered how you were ever going to get out of it or wake up from it. Our escape was a massive gully system that ran alongside the wall. We'd have to rappel down it in order to get back to the base of the climb so we could get back to the car. But how would we do that? The shuttles had stopped running long ago and we were miles from our truck. We were out there, that was for sure. Dave and I had to go first and last on the rappels so we could shine some light on Tim, who had no light. After a couple of rappels, Tim also realized he'd left his climbing shoes on the summit. There was no time to lament, we just had to move. Tim did end up saving the day with cheese and sausage that he'd brought along, and we devoured that like starving men, hungry, so hungry. We'd made 17 rappels that had taken us several hours. Was morning approaching or would night last forever, we wondered. None of us had watches or even a cell phone, so we had no idea what time it was. We'd reached a point where we could no longer tell where the next rappel was. We couldn't tell and didn't want to be more dangerous than we'd already been, so we just stayed put. We finally accepted the benightment. We sat there, cold, fatigued, and frustrated. Dave made a final effort to find a rappel station and scrambled some 20 feet above where Tim and I just sat there with our heads in our hands, trying in vain to sleep. Dave found nothing and just sat up there with his own thoughts of frustration, waiting for the sun to rise. And it did, like it always does, and it showed us the way. We were a mere 200 feet off the ground. We rappelled down to the ground and the euphoria struck us that would last for the rest of the day. The light, the surroundings, everything just became magical. The deliriousness of the night turned into a wonderment of light and excitement to just simply exist. We were hungry and we knew there was food somewhere. And we'd survived a situation that could have easily gone bad, really bad. We caught the shuttle and headed straight to the nearby town where we found a buffet. It was just your normal American buffet, nothing fancy or special, but damn, it felt special. We ate so much food that there's no way they made a dime on us that day. We went back for fourths and fifths and talked to the waitresses to ask if we could speak to the manager to just tell them how great the food was. We were high on life, man. We were so just high on climbing and suffering and surviving, and it was one of the greatest days of my life. This is how the addiction to the dirtbag life begins. Have a big adventure. Get scared and humbled. Come back down to the horizontal world and everything seems anew. Normal everyday things become sacred. And then you want to go up and do it all over again. So after resting and eating everything we saw for a day and a half, Dave and I went back up. This time we packed a portal edge and a big haul bag. We went after another so-called moderate aid route, Moonlight Buttress. It seems silly now to carry so much on a route that barely checks in at a thousand feet long, but we needed to learn. And when my mind drifts back to this climb, it's impossible not to think of it as a work of art from nature slash God. A few approach pitches lead up to a laser splitter finger crack that starts and never seems like it's ever going to finish. 
The splitter goes on for several pitches, like a highway to heaven. We had plenty of cursing and struggle to get up to that splitter, hauling everything but the kitchen sink. Our first night, we struggled like hell to get the portal ledge set up. Manual labor at its finest, fighting to put the metal rods together that form the base and let it sit horizontally along the wall so we could have a small place to sleep for the night. It felt so awkward, and I went to anger much quicker than Dave, cursing at the damn thing. Finally, impatiently, Dave got it set up, and we had our dinner of one shared beer and some sort of food that we ate out of a can with a nut tool. It was the same nut tool that we'd shoved into the cracks to get the cans and nuts out, so the tool was covered with aluminum, grime, and dirt. Like a good completed day of manual labor, we felt a hard-earned satisfaction. We were relieved to have our perch on this sandstone wall and a canyon of sandstone walls. With the trees below looking like small bushes and birds circling and swerving below you and among you, there's something to be said for living a life amongst the birds. The struggle continued into the next day, taking down the portal ledge, packing, and moving upward. The progress was simple and the cracks were perfect, even better for free climbing, but we weren't there yet. We were just a couple of hardworking guys, learning the mechanics of aid climbing, paying our dues for bigger climbs ahead. The struggle was relieved at the top. We were awash with relief and success. We shook hands and proudly took stock of our herder in view as the sun went down. A week without showering, two walls, and a lot of wondering in the weird western Utah, it was time to go on to whatever would be next. On the trail down, it was dark, and we slowly moved down with our ropes in a large haul bag, happy as pigs and shit. A party of three passed us with a couple women. They smelled clean and wonderful, like a flower in the spring, showing us everything that was right in the world, and they probably held their noses as we passed. That night, we packed up the truck and drove back to Indian Creek. Once the desert got too hot, I returned back to the mountains, much as the youths would do back in the day. I was in some sort of carnal survival mode. I knew I loved climbing, and I just thought I should do what I needed to do to continue climbing. There was always a welcoming feeling of being back home to Gunnison. After all, it was the only home I really had. I was at home when I was in Illinois, but in Gunny I felt at home, among my people. I returned to my dishwashing gig in Crested Butte and moved into an apartment in Gunny with my friend Phil. The apartment complex soon became an elaborate base camp for our friends. With two of us living there and paying rent, but there was always someone camping out in their RV in the parking lot or someone crashed out in the couch. Our good friends Amber and Sarah lived next door, and the Saboya Lodge, as it was called, became a commune of sorts. Looking back, I wonder why I didn't have more drive, more motivation. I would put myself through great pains to climb a big wall, but I didn't have any desire to start a career. My writing was sporadic, a path I was on but not fully dedicated to. I had an ocean of time to sit upon, and all I did was float. My dishwashing gig took up much of my time. I considered myself a master of the trade. I would even let the dishes pile sky high just to see how quickly I could make the pile dissipate. I would save money by hitchhiking up to Crested Butte from Gunnison instead of driving. All sorts of characters would pick me up, but some nights I'd sit at the hitchhiking post for an hour, desperate for a ride, wondering to myself why I would be so cheap and to not drive. I guess in many ways, this was the end of the era of being by yourself. Cell phones were still archaic, no social media, just you and your thoughts. 
Once I got into a rhythm, I started writing again. All the stories I wrote were in the style of what the Mountain Gazette would publish. My writing mentor in college, George Sibley, was a longtime contributor, and the editor of the Gazette, John Fahey, adored Sibley and his work, so he would listen to him when he recommended a piece. The Mountain Gazette was a free monthly publication, and I even decided to become the delivery boy for some extra cash once a month, hoping that would build some sort of street cred with Fahey. The Gazette had a history that went back to Edward Abbey and Hunter S. Thompson, and all the stories were full of adventure and rebels in the American West that I'd been obsessed with since I started reading Kerouac. I wanted to join the lineage. I regularly submitted stories to Fahey, and after a couple highly edited successes, he just started saying no. I took it personally, of course. What writer doesn't take things personally? Then, after some prying as to why he wasn't accepting my submissions, he delivered the hard blow that was the truth. I needed to learn the craft. I had the prose and the poetry, but embarrassingly lacked some of the basics needed to publish. He noted that every piece of mine had to have an edit every sentence. I was trying to break the rules before I learned them. His final line in the message, you need to get a basic writing job to learn the craft. I wasn't ready to get a steady job, to sit at a desk and be patient and learn a craft with an editor by my side, coaching me in the art of writing. I just wanted to be stoned and washing dishes and traveling and climbing rocks and living with my head in the clouds. Some say that the brain doesn't stop growing until the mid-twenties. I was a little past that, but maybe my brain was on a late growth spurt. Maybe I just lacked discipline, so I continued to write with bad grammar and punctuation, scribbling out my dreams at the coffee shop, handwritten dreams and word that have since disappeared, but thankfully, the dream did not disappear. Life continued to give me art and inspiration. I became acquainted with a woman named Karina, who was a yoga teacher and had the looks of a goddess. She told me that her parents named her after the Bob Dylan song, Karina Karina. They must have known she was going to be a heartbreaker. Here's some lyrics from the song. Karina Karina, gal, you're on my mind. Karina Karina, I've been thinking about you, baby, and I can't keep from crying. Like the rules of writing, I lacked any sense in the unwritten rules of love. I just dove in headfirst with true emotion and never paced myself or took a cautious approach. Like the song told me, I knew Karina would hurt me. She brought me into her bedroom, and after that, I was under her trance. Whenever we would be apart, I would long for her, and whenever we were together, I just wanted to love her. I came on too strong and scared her off. When she ultimately broke up with me, the pains of many years before all came back. I was still holding onto the pain from Charisse so many years ago so long ago, then that it feels like it was a lifetime ago, but the heart remembers so deeply. The cycles of the Gunnison Valley living happen like they always do, the reluctant and eventually blissful fleeting summer, the nostalgic fall leading into the winter. I moved out of my apartment in Gunnison and couch surfed much of the fall. When winter approached, I sold my truck and bought a cheaper car. I would use all the money for my winter travels. I didn't know where I would end up. I just knew I would start in Mexico again and see where that led me. I rolled out for my third Mexico trip with Two Tent. He'd been living out in Oregon for the last few years, and it was nice to finally have him back in Colorado. We would be picking up Mark in San Antonio and then meeting Scott there. I had everything I owned in my little 1988 Mazda compact car. A great ice storm enveloped Texas that fateful January day. And all the years of training with winter driving in Colorado surely helped us stay on the road that night. Nothing could protect us from other drivers. We probably saw 40 cars and semi-trucks that had driven off the road. At times, the ice would just catch your car, and you'd be swerving out of control, your rear end giving out. 
We managed to stay on the road, but the driving was much slower than we anticipated as we stopped off in a small Texas highway town to try to find a place to rest our weary bones. The town was incredibly sketchy, overrun by characters of the night. Tutent had never even paid to stay in a hotel before, and he insisted we keep looking for cheaper prices, and the motels got worse and worse as we went through this process. Dirtbag instincts can be good. They can save you money, but sometimes they can guide you in the wrong direction. And they led us to a drug den of a motel at the end of the line of sketchy motels. But we just needed a place to sleep for a few hours, right? Ten minutes in, we had a pimp knocking on our door. We didn't answer, but looked out the peephole to his sketchy face. Then the phone rang, and it's this guy looking for sex. After that, we proceeded to put the dresser up against the door of the motel. We slept restlessly and got back on the highway to pick up Mark and cross over into Mexico. Mark was easy to pick out from the airport. He stands six foot two with wild, goofy blonde hair and blue eyes. He stood out even more in Mexico. Mark had one week, as did Tutent. They were seeking reprieve from the cold Crested Butte winter. Scott and I had been raving about Potrero since our perfect month there the year before. The storm was socked in. Instead of bluebird skies and perfect temperatures, the sky was graybird and a fog permeated the canyon. It had a gothic vibe to it, and instead of an electric feeling of stoke like the year before, the place seemed lethargic and damp. We all made the best of it. Two-tent Mark didn't know the difference of the place anyways, but Scott and I knew how good it could be. After a few days of cracking, we needed a rest day, and the sky was blue for the first time in the trip. The next day was back to gray skies. Two-tent Mark had left, and Scott and I decided to hit the road. This was my second winter of just floating, but this winter, I had even less of a plan than before. I thought maybe I'd just stay in Mexico all winter, but Scott needed a ride to Prescott, Arizona, where he was in graduate school, so I volunteered to give him a lift. I just made him promise we could visit Joshua Tree, California, which was on the list of the places I could end up, just for the winter. We drove and drove across the bottom of the country. We were pulled over three times in the middle of the night along the border. My car was bursting at the seams with everything I own, plus Scott's gear. At one point, they asked if they could search the car. I said, no, I know my rights, and you have no probable cause. They let us go. We drove through the night the next day. We tried to climb at Cochise in Arizona, but got snowed out. We kept driving and driving, hoping to drive away from the weather. Finally, we headed to California to Joshua Tree, arriving in the middle of the night. Was Joshua Tree the place I needed to be? It had a history of being the climber's winter hangout in Southern California. The weather was supposed to be perfect for climbing in the winter, and a winter without snow appealed to me very much. I knew I needed to get a job. I didn't save enough money to work all winter, even for the meager funds I'd needed just to climb and eat all day. Over the next couple of days, Joshua Tree won me over. The blue skies finally revealed themselves, and we basked in the sun and scared ourselves on the granite slabs and domes. The jay trees, thousands of them, unique and stretching out like they were doing yoga, extended across the landscape for miles and miles. There was no end in sight to the landscape, just like the sky above. There were plenty of other climbers around, and I knew I could count on them for partners. After a short two-day trial, I decided I wanted to stay. I just needed a part-time job. I knew my work ethic could get me a gig if I could just get my foot in the door somewhere. In my mind, there was only one place, Crossroads, the restaurant that served the needs of climbers from coffee to lunch to beers to dinners. It was where everyone went, and I saw my way in. I walked into the place and told them I was the greatest dishwasher this side of the Mississippi. 
the owner kind of looked at me to say, so what? But like almost always, they needed a dishwasher because the dishwasher is the most transient and temporary of all jobs. Three days later, after taking Scott back to Arizona, I was working my first shift. Alone in Southern California, I could practically hear the Eagles music in the landscape, that land where it's always sunny, where America's on the edge, nowhere else to expand our empire, so it blossoms into this land of fast cars and tank tops and bikinis. Joshua Tree stands as an oasis amongst the madness, the one place humans let stand alone. I knew I was where I could make my stand, to climb for a winter. Of course, I lived in a tent in Hidden Valley, the main climber's campground. I used a payphone for calls. It didn't have a computer, and the only way people could get a hold of me was by calling Crossroads, which did happen. And I'd be at the dishwashing sink, still washing away amongst the soap and the grime, catching up with my friends who seemed very much stoked for me that I committed to a winter of dirtbagging in J-Tree. One of those guys was my buddy Adam, who seemed more stoked for me than I was stoked for me. We went to college together, and he was like many of my adventurous friends from college, wild and hungry for all types of experiences. Though he didn't know it, he was convincing me of how awesome my life was. In my own mind, I was lost and searching for something I'd yet to identify. I just knew I had to be uncomfortable and on the edge. Joshua Tree was certainly the edge. On the edge of America, they are always freaks. In climbing, everyone used to be a freak, but now it's more mainstream. The pocket still exists though. And at the time, it was only five bucks a night to camp in Joshua Tree. And if you were created enough, you could stay well past the 14 day limit. I needed to stay past that limit. I didn't have any money for rent and any desire to live indoors. I just wanted to be wild and free amongst the rocks and to call them my rightful home. My tent, my home, had poetry scribbled on the walls. I kept a daily journal of every dime I spent. After all, I was living on washing dishes for three days a week. There were leftovers though, and I ate as much as I ever needed. My stomach was fed, and only left my spirit to be fed. The landscape fed my spirit, but also left me hungry. The kind of hungry I couldn't understand at the time. It also provided me with a home. There were others too, the freaks from the full-time climbing group of which I would be included, and then the weekend climbers who would come and go from the city. Of course, the first challenge was to solicit partners, finding someone I could trust and equally as important, whose company I could enjoy. Right away, I noticed the Dirtbag Hippie Stronghold, which operated out of Camp 17. There were many, many of them, and their camp carried an aura of the past of California climbing. They were all hippies, but everyone, of course, carried the Dirtbag Climbing Torch in their own way. Some wore bandanas and have elaborate free solo circuits on the dome surrounding camp. They seemed to live free. There were 10 guys for every girl in the hardcore day-to-day -day crowd, which made me think I'd have a very lonely winter on the female front. But I was there to climb and I was there to figure myself out, even if I didn't realize it at the time. That was episode 11 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. This is Luke Mihal, and I'm, I don't really have any ad-libs today or anything to add, mostly because my uh, battery is dying on the recording device. 
But this episode was produced by Chad Rich. He's our digital editor and producer for the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. I'm Luke Mihal coming at you from beautiful Durango, Colorado. And it's still raining. Work. Work.